Hi all, welcome to Energy in 30. We'll use the next 30 minutes to explore how utilities and the industry are reacting to forces that are shaping new offerings for customers in order to meet decarbonization goals. If you're a utility manager, consultant, technology provider, or just curious about energy, we hope to push your thinking about the changes that are happening in the energy industry with me, David Meisegeier. And me, Joan Collins. So Joan, how you doing? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited that we've got some cooler weather and I will be off next week on a cruise. So I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And I'm off to Santa Fe the following week. So, so should we get to it? Let's jump into it. Okay. So we are honored to have with us today the co-authors of the Decarbonization Imperative, Transforming the Global Economy of 2050 by Mike Lennox and Becky Duff. Mike is Special Advisor for the Dean and Professor of Business Administration at UVA Darden School of Business with focused areas of expertise in business strategy, innovation and entrepreneurship, digital transformation, and business and sustainability. His research has appeared in over 30 referred academic publications, um, and he's been cited in a number of media outlets, including the New York Times, the Financial Times, and The Economist. And now we're adding him to energy in 30. <laughs> awesome. And Becky is the Director of Thought Leadership at the Batten Institute, a center of excellence that supports Darden students and faculty through research on topics that impact business practices and policy in entrepreneurship, innovation, and technology. She has more than 20 years of experience conducting industry and technology research with a particular focus on product development, emerging technologies, and policy and market interventions. And as a side note, Becky and I are former colleagues and worked together for many years supporting the growth of Energy Star. So welcome, Mike and Becky. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having me. It's so great to be back with ICF. Awesome. So great to have you both on. We're really looking forward to digging in. And speaking of that, let's talk about the beginning of this book. It just, um, I just felt like it was such a powerful start to your book to talk about the debate around um, adapting versus um, mitigation and that debate that's happening. And I think what really kind of pulled me in was that we need both, right? We really need to, to um, underscore how important adapting is for resiliency and disaster recovery. But uh, also um, mitigating is absolutely imperative. And I just, you know, we were curious about that start to the book and wondered if Mike, Becky, if you could tell us about that start and also what drove the two of you to write the book. Yeah, I, I think sometimes when we, we look at the breadth of the, the climate crisis we face, we you know might throw up our hands and say, all we can do now is just try to adapt to the uh, impacts that we're going to see. I think that's already occurring and will need to continue to occur. Um, but what the climate scientists tell us that if we continue to basically increase greenhouse gas emissions, um, that the impacts that we're going to see um, could be could be exponentially increasing with every degree Celsius warming. And, and what it basically tells us is we can't escape 
the mitigation problem. We can't escape the problem of trying to address our burning of fossil fuels and, and basically to decarbonize our global economy. So, you know, our starting premise from the book was just to kind of take that question on. Like, what would it really take to decarbonize the global economy by 2050? And specifically, what does it look like on a kind of an industry by industry basis there to really try to break the problem down into its constituent parts uh, and, and hopefully have maybe a, a better sense of what could be done to, to get us there? Mm. And I, I love that you did break it down by sector. Uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge sector related to to hitting a decarbonization by 2050 well i'm gonna let me hit the big part and then i'm gonna let becky take which i know we both agree is probably the sector that we're most uh, concerned about but um a lot of i think the vision that people have for how we decarbonize actually centers around electrification in yep. industries and sectors where we can electrify, electric vehicles, converting our built environment and the use of fossil fuels for things like uh, heating and the use in cooking uh, to electric uh, options uh, and industrials, uh, any number of them, we could look at electrification as core. And then you've got to decarbonize electrical generation, right? So that the core activity then becomes that electrical uh, degen um, uh, decarbonization. I, you know, those sectors, I think we'll dive into more. But Becky, what do you think? What What is the sector that I haven't mentioned that is arguably maybe the hardest to decarbonize? Uh, I think I think we'll agree that agriculture. There you is, go. Is, yeah. But but I but I would also say industrials also uh, worry me, right? And 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 I think doing research for this book, it became very clear that there was no silver bullet that um, solution that could be um, implemented across sectors and get us to where we need to be. And, and so when you look at each of the individual sectors, you see that they have their own unique challenges um, and there are different levers needed to advance uh, clean tech adoption in those sectors. Um, for industrials, uh, for some of the uh, processes, namely, cement, petrochemicals, and um, steel, just the very manufacturing um, uses a ton of energy, right? And so how can you provide that amount of energy with renewables? It's, it's almost impossible in, in many instances right now, although you could look at what they're doing around concentrated solar and, and other ways to do it. And also, the the uh, uh, materials themselves and the processes, especially in cement, emit carbon emissions. So now we're talking about um, having alternatives to those products. And petrochemicals is one that gives me a lot of uh, pause of whether or not we can do it because now you're telling people not to buy plastics and plastics are everywhere, right? And I don't even think that people understand um, the amount of energy and fossil fuels that go into plastics manufacturing. And I, I think that's one thing that I really love about this book going into it. I didn't know anything about these sectors. You know, my background, as you said, David, was in energy efficiency and, and that's still very important, but we've got these big sectors that need a ton of investment in terms of um, technology support and also changing consumer behavior, which is so hard. And, and that gets me to ag, right? Uh, food <laughs> and ag. Um, yeah. 
because I, again, I just don't think people think about where their food is coming in, how much, um, how much emissions come from eating livestock and um, uh, uh, using the soil to, to grow crops. And, and so then you're, you're thinking about changing consumer behavior and what they buy in the grocery stores. And you're also trying to get to thousands of farmers. I mean, there's a lot of talk about regenerative farming. I think that's great. But how do you change behavior, especially in other countries where those populations are growing? And lots of challenges for those, too. And what was so, I think, interesting is how you layered in with these sectors, the technology disruption that's happening within each of these sectors. And just in such a clear and concise way, uh, I think it was in ag that you actually had something called the wild card disruptor, which I just found like kind of blew my mind, really. Um, like you said, we sometimes we focus on just just, you know, kind of the same aspects all the time. But I felt like um, in this book, it really pulls out a lot of these innovations that maybe we don't hear about a lot. Yeah, and I think that's that's really central to our argument that if we're going to be serious about climate change, we really are thinking about technology disruptions. We're talking about transforming whole industries from kind of one dominant technology to another, whether it be internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, whether it's natural gas turbines to renewable energy in the electrical sector, um, or as Becky was talking about, you know, uh, uh, Portland-based cement uh, to some type of green alternative. You know, each one of these sectors needs significant innovation and then transformation and adoption um, for us to to truly address these uh, the emissions that we have. I, I want to stray a little bit from the book for half a second here. Um, I was engaged in a conversation not too long ago, uh, and the person brought up, you know, what's happening in, in China and, and India and, and other parts of the world. You can look at the UK now with uh, their reversal on on climate stance and 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 the challenge that they posed was why you know why should we you know do all this stuff if if other parts of the world that have as big or bigger impact are not doing anything why should it be incumbent on us i i, I mean i think this is this is in part why we're pushing up what one might call a market narrative. And to be very clear, we're not viewing the market as a panacea here that will just automatically solve the climate crisis for us. Um, but the beauty of technology and innovation is that when these technologies become market viable uh, and even market preferred, adoption actually happens quite naturally. Um, I think we're seeing that with electric vehicles and the way prices have come down and that we basically have seen a doubling uh, in new car, the percentage of new car sales that are EVs over the last five years, every year a doubling. Um, we're seeing uh, in the US especially that basically all new installations of electrical generation are renewables at this point. And this is being driven by the economics that the cost of wind and solar have come down to a point where utilities are, you know, making the low cost um, uh, adoption decision. Um, again, I don't want to suggest this is just, you know, uh, a panacea that this will just, you know, occur naturally, but it avoids some of those geopolitical issues that you you lay out there, David. Um, 
you know, dare I say, you know, the conference of parties and the efforts by the UN to achieve, you know, global consensus on, on climate change, uh, you know, a lot of those those targets and the like don't don't seem to be causing much action on the ground. Um, but yet we're seeing these trends in certain sectors that give us at least some hope that we could still could still get there. Mm. Yeah, and I, I would add, you know, this is a global issue, right? And so we can stick our head in the sand and say, we're doing just fine. These other countries are, are polluting, uh, growing and polluting more, and, and they're gonna be part of the problem. But it becomes all of our problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, climate change is global. It's a global issue. And I think, you know, in the U.S. and other developed countries have a real opportunity here to invest in undeveloped countries and, and help bring them along along more quickly. Uh, leapfrog some of the technologies that we uh, we had early on in industrial you know, times and we've come around to renewables, leapfrog those technologies and go straight to renewables take some of our learnings and research and help prop up those uh, systems overseas. Um, and I just think that it is, it, it's, it's a role that we need to play um, yeah. in the U S. Yeah. My answer, by the way, was uh, the serenity prayer. <clears throat> you know, you can't control everything. So it is outside of our control, what other countries do, but it is in our control as to what we as individuals do. And so, as, as you said, Becky, it is, if you believe that this is, is a real issue, and not everybody does, uh, but if you do believe that it's an issue, you as an individual can play a part of making a difference because every little bit uh, we do has an impact. Um, and I cited that CO2, while not the most potent uh, greenhouse gas is one of the longest living. It, it stays in the atmosphere for 200 years or, or, or more. And so even if we were to go completely uh, carbon free today, the next 200 years, uh, our, our generations are gonna be living with, with the, the implications of what we've emitted thus far. So anything we do to reduce our personal emissions today will will have a lasting impact. You know, we put uh, the 2050 in the title of the book, um, mainly because that's what, you know, many people kind of agree is at least the, the, the date in which we really need to decarbonize. But the fact is that every year that goes by that we don't significantly decrease emissions and actually are increasing emissions, which is still the case, that date actually gets shorter and shorter. Um, and, and there are scientists who believe that we might have already overshot the 1.5 degree target of uh, the Paris Accords there. Yeah. Um, and you know, going back to, Joan, your original question, it doesn't take away the fact that we still need to figure this out. We still need to decarbonize. Mm -hmm. We still need to reduce these emissions and the sooner the better, because there is a timeliness to this that's that's just really critical. Yeah. Yeah. So we were joking before we started recording about mitigation versus migration. Uh, but but I do think that um, migration is going to be um, part of our future. Yeah, with sea level rise, we we have m 
many parts of the world that are going to have to migrate to higher ground. Uh, and it's not just developing countries. It's Miami and New York City and Los Angeles, you know, goes on and on. Um, what what do you, you know, what do you think we, how do you balance, I guess, you know, all of these huge, big needs? I mean, adaptation, mitigation, migration, the the cost of all of these super storms that just keep and in, you know increasing. Uh, everything that we're talking about is costly. Where do we place our our investments to best go forward and and into the future? I think you know I would I would observe that while this is absolutely kind of the ultimate commons problem, right? This is a global issue, um, and the emissions that go into the atmosphere, you know, affect the whole globe. Um, so you can't you can't separate it out. It's interesting to note that the impacts of climate change will likely be very uh, lumpy. Let's call them. Um, uh, I think about some of the extreme weather events that we see, hurricanes, tornadoes, forest fires. Those can often be incredibly localized to the point that, you know, the home next door is destroyed by a tornado, but my home is still standing or the hurricane, you know, uh, comes in with sea level rise that, that washes away one home and not another or the same with forest fires and the like. And I think that becomes very hard for us as individuals or even collectively as society to truly assess risk um, yeah. and, and how this will will play out. Um, and, and again, I think I go back to where we started of why trying to get at the underlying problem, which is ultimately the emission of greenhouse gases that are creating the climate, you know, global warming phenomenon and then climate change is gonna be critical here um, because uh, for better or for worse, I think the impacts are going to be unevenly distributed around the world. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, let's talk about migration. That's probably my greatest fear with climate change in terms of its impact on society and the world, that we're going to probably have major refugee crises. One could argue we're already seeing that in some of the refugee crises we already see uh, in various parts of the world. How mm -hmm. will different nation states react to that? How will it destabilize different countries um, lead to the rise of authoritarian regimes, countries, you know, basically putting up borders and, and, and trying to protect themselves at the risk mm -hmm. uh, and that maybe at the detriment of other uh, countries and peoples. Uh, that, I think, is a likely future for us in a, in a you know, a globally warming world. Um, so, again, you know, I, I just come back to first principles here. We, we've got to address the underlying problem uh, because the, the implications could be quite, quite severe. Mm. Yeah, and I think about, you know, where to invest, I think, in terms of the sectors, right? Where do we invest our most time and energy and, and dollars in? And um, you could argue that uh, electric vehicles, for example, is almost a hands-off approach at this point, right? I mean, things are moving very quickly. Um, I, I don't think we need incentives anymore. Um, to get people interested in electric vehicles because the cost has come down. There's not a range anxiety anymore as these um, cars are, are are hitting 300, 400 miles. Um, and so 
you know, maybe that's maybe there's a little bit to invest in terms of supporting infrastructure. But again, looking at those sectors that are really behind and deciding how much to invest in those sectors, like industrials and agriculture, um, where will those investments have the biggest bang for the buck? Yeah. Or are we looking at just putting those investments into carbon capture or something else? Like, so there's, again, it's a sector by sector approach. Um, energy, I mean, very near and dear to your guys' heart. I mean, I think it's clear renewable prices come down. It's, it's, um, um, it's it's where it needs to be in terms of shifting markets, but then you need long duration energy storage, and you need to figure out uh, permitting and and mm. other challenges. And so you really need to look at this as a sector sector by sector solution problems and solutions to 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 move things forward. And I think you know we've got a lot of people spending most of their time within one sector, and I think that's important because they you need that that concentrated push in that sector. But I think you also need people that are looking across sectors like policymakers and others that say, okay, where where do we need to put the most investment? Where might we need regulation? Where might we need um, incentives to help move things forward? And, and I think that's why this book is uh, so appealing is that it, it, it takes that sector to, by sector approach. You know, I just want to take a quick second to kind of uh, deep dive on on what Becky just mentioned with like the electric utility sector and electrical yeah. generation. Um, we we know that as we get more and more renewables on the grid, it creates problems. The intermittency is real, and the solution will likely be a combination of massive storage, maybe battery based, maybe otherwise, but probably also the need to build out a much more distributed grid where we've gone from a few thousand point sources in the United States of electrical generation to literally millions of potential point sources with different solar panels on residential and commercial buildings and the like. And that puts additional stress on the grid, needing additional lines. Uh, it needs kind of smart grid technology and IoT devices to be able to manage such a highly distributed grid. Even yeah. things like pricing are going to be infinitely more complex in the grid we're moving towards to where we are today. And so, you know, while again, um, you know, the private sector is helping drive some of these technologies forward where they're becoming increasingly market viable, there's going to need to be investment. And some of that's going to fall in the public sector in terms of infrastructure and the like to be able to make this transition uh, possible. In the same way, by the way, there was a massive investment to make the infrastructure we have today work uh, when we were first starting off uh, and using renewables, excuse me, using fossil fuels and the like. Um, so again, as Becky said, that kind of sector by sector approach allows you to start to see, all right, where are the where are the roadblocks that we're currently seeing to making these transitions and where do we need both private and public interventions to kind of make it happen? Yeah. And that's one of the, the things that I found really interesting about the book is you 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 pull that apart and it makes it it makes it more man it feels more manageable when you start to look at it in that level of detail definitely i'm wondering too how you after this was released and as much as you you know talk about I mean it's your you talk about this a lot and you know even i know um you know in other things that you're you're publishing and putting out there what kinds of like what's the most 
maybe interesting piece of information you've gotten back, right, from people who have read the book or when you've discussed it on the podcast yeah. or, you know. I, I'll, I'll say, you know, the thing that maybe has been the most uh, exciting and maybe even a little surprising is when we wrote the book, we were advocating for broadly uh, technology and industrial policy uh, and to think more broadly about the levers that this, the you know, government has available to try to encourage transitions beyond just what you often hear from economists of like put a price on carbon. Um, so with the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, it, it's it's fascinating to see, you know, industrial policies back. People are talking about it uh, actively on actually all sides of the political spectrum, uh, and and clearly it has become viewed as a as a tool available to help uh, push the transition. I think where we're getting now, which I think is a good conversation to have, is what elements of industrial policy, or if we want to call it technology policy. Um, are going to be contributing and helping us solve this crisis and what elements of it might undermine it even. Uh, mm -hmm. Dare I say some of the protectionism uh, and the kind of lack of faith of global markets uh, could, could end up being detrimental to the transitions we need to see, as David, as you were talking about earlier, that need to go across the globe. So lots of competing interests, lots of different pressures that are seen in the, in the public sphere. But at the very least, it's great to see that we're kind of opening up the potential toolkit um, available to try to bring about these transitions. That's great. And I, I find that, you know, as I and this has been years now, it, you know, when you talk about these new technologies, renewables or others, and you always get the person that says, well, what about the battery waste? And what about this? And what about that? And and I, I think. Yes, we need to be thinking about that, but let's let's focus on our, our most urgent need right now. We have got to slow down climate change and we've got to slow down the amount of greenhouse gases we're emitting. And so it's a yes and, right? Like you don't go with a new technology because you're, you know, people are saying, well, there's going to be a, a waste at the end of it. Yes, of course. And um and that's where I get really uh, excited about circular economy, but that's a whole nother podcast um, <laughs> because um, that is some really cool stuff and thinking that. And so I think, you know, where we are today is because maybe we innovated without thinking about um, the implications of, of those innovations longer term. So I think moving forward, we, we do need to be more mindful about our innovations and we need to think about um, not just the technology at hand, but also maybe the end of life implications. Um, but that's not to stop us going down that road. I think you need to take that into consideration. I, I think one of the core things that's at the heart of the way we kind of have looked at the world um, is what we might just simply call learning curves. Uh, and this idea that there are technologies that today look like, again, they're not viable in the market. They're too expensive. They don't have the quality that other existing technologies have. But this path to improvement is just this is just a part and parcel of a market-based economy, and we see this over and over again. We're probably not going to Blockbuster Video to rent a video and use our Blackberries to contact one another. Like that, this right. is natural. True. And so I am surprised when there are these reactions that almost want to deny economics, right? We want to deny the market because they want to say, like, you know, oh, well, of course, electric vehicles are more expensive and worse than internal combustion engines. 
And, and, and you know, my message is like, well, we'll pay attention, look at the data, see what's actually happening in these sectors. Uh, and again, I wanna be very clear, I'm not suggesting this is just like some magic wand and everything gets solved, but you gotta think about those dynamics of the technology and the industry if you really wanna be serious about transitions. Um, and so again, I, I'm always amazed by people who are kind of resisting technologies as they come in and are actually favored by the market. Like I said, are you, are you still using your BlackBerry? Um, and, and why not? Right. Um, yeah, so. and I, yeah, and I think back uh, to my Energy Star days and, and the importance of uh, products that are in the Energy Star label to perform the same or better, yep. be, you know, perform the same or better as the technology they're replacing. Same thing goes here with, with clean technologies is that um, I don't think we're suggesting that you just adopt green technology for the sake of being green, although some people do that. Um, but I think there's an importance here around performance. And um, we're seeing this with the electric vehicles, I think, where, uh, where the performance is really driving these cars now. I think early adopters were green, um, but I think now they're, they're looking at performance. And once that happens, then it, it's kind of unstoppable. That's right. Well, I can't believe, but we are <laughs> we are getting close to time here. So if it's okay, David, unless you had something else, I thought maybe I'd ask our last big question. Go for it. Okay. Becky, why don't we start with you? If there was one thing that you could change in the industry, no limits, what would it be? So not surprisingly, I'm going to look to food and ag. It's 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 my favorite industry. I think it's the one that has the most exciting innovations happening right now and it's the one that's the most challenging and i don't know maybe i'm drawn to big challenge big life challenges but um um i myself have uh not eaten beef for i guess three or four years now since i started doing the research and really understanding the impact environmental and greenhouse gas emission impact that beef has so if i could change i would I would um, I would change that industry. I mean, there's exciting things happening with pro alternative proteins and lab-grown meat. And so um, if I could have anything, it would be a world uh, without beef. Mm. Or clean beef, right? Or clean <laughs> beef. Yeah, yeah, that's a big one. So, yeah. That's great. And what about you, Mike? Well, well, since Becky took agriculture, I'm going to take um, the electric utility sector again. Okay. And again, I think if I could wave a magic wand, I think this full embracing and recognition that the future is most likely a very, very distributed grid connected with smart grid technology with ample storage on it, and then making the investments and working towards that um, again. The underlying technologies of solar and wind are becoming very favorable, but that's not sufficient. Um, it's necessary, but not sufficient. And so we really need to get working on that, that kind of broader system investment to make this kind of vision for a decarbonized electrical sector work. Um, I, I think one of the things that maybe is underappreciated is if we're able to achieve this, we're probably looking at a world of incredibly cheap electricity. Um, mm. While there are obviously, you know, significant capital costs to building this out, the, the marginal cost of producing, you know, solar and wind is is very, very low. 
Uh, and and that has huge implications for economic growth and, and a whole host of kind of positive things on society if we can can really drive down the cost of producing electricity. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you so much. So Mike and Becky, we can't thank you both enough for joining us to discuss this road to 2050. So thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having me. I also want to call out that Mike has a new book that was just published in June called Strategy in the Digital Age, Mastering Digital Transition. It includes some compelling insights on Gen AI, which you heard Joan and I discuss with our colleague Nick Lang on a recent episode. And Mike hosts a podcast that Becky produces that you may also want to check out called Good Disruption. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please let a colleague or friend know about it. It's one of the best ways for people to hear about this podcast, and we'd sure appreciate if you also like, share, or even subscribe to our podcast. And you might be interested in tuning into our next episode where we dig into the art and reward of account-based marketing. And have a great day. We'll catch you on our next Energy in 30.